So I want to encourage you this morning to turn to the Old Testament book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 7. And we're going to continue our study of what it means to experience a life of victory. And we've been studying that now for several weeks. The series is called More Than Conquerors. And today's message is called Handling the Hidden Rebellion. As you and I, there's a moment in our lives, those of us that know Christ, where we first trusted Him. And when we did, uh, there should be, it's normal to experience a period of time where there is joy and great excitement and a hunger and a desire to learn and to grow and to study His Word and to be pleasing to Him. And then we begin to experience the battle with sin in our life. And you may have been a Christian a long time or a short time, but you, you know what I'm talking about, that there are times where it just seems that, that things maybe come easily and you're trusting the Lord and you're seeing God work, and then, and then something happens, you, you sin and you're, you're dumbfounded, and what do I do with this? How do I go forward after a failure in my life? How can I resume the life of victory that I once had? And maybe as I talk about that, you can think immediately of something, or perhaps it's something that happened a long time ago, and and you're thinking, you know, I just sort of learned to live with this part of my history, but I've never really dealt with it, and it affects me to this day. How do you handle hidden rebellion in the human heart? How do you handle sin? once it happens. This is not a message about overcoming sin, it's about dealing with it once you've done it. And so in Joshua chapter 7, we're going to start out reading verse 2, we'll come back to verse 1 in just a moment, but let's look at verse 2 and read about the first defeat in the battle for Canaan. The people of God been delivered from Egypt, the first generation was too frightened, didn't have faith to enter the promised land, And consequently, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. But another generation grew up, and they've entered the promised land. They've had nothing but victory to this point until you come to verse 2 of chapter 7. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them saying, go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. If you don't know how to pronounce it, just spell it. I like that one. That's one of my favorites. Spelled out, spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about 3,000 men went up from there, from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men. For they chased them from before the gate as far as Shabarim and struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. So far, we saw in the very beginning of this book, Joshua taught us what it means to live in the promised land. It's the life of a warrior. The promised land never represents heaven. It represents the life that you and I have now in Christ And that as we live that life, it's one of conflict, one of challenges to our faith. And and how do we deal with that? Well, we have to live as a warrior. And 
the second study, we looked at the life of a woman named Rahab and how she illustrated for us the importance of choosing sides in a conflict and that it's important, even though you're Christian, you, you have chosen your side, it's important to re-up on a regular basis and like Rahab say, you know, I, I'm going to identify with the people of God. I choose to be part of his people. And then we, we looked at Jericho and, and the stronghold that was, that was standing in the way of their forward movement in the life God had for them. And, and you and I experience that. We have strongholds, places where the enemy has sheltered himself in our life or in the life of someone that we love. And how do we deal with these strongholds of sin, these, these, this opposition? And I, I try and it, it doesn't get better. And how do I tear it down? And we studied that last week. But today, when I blow it, when I am defeated, how do I handle that? And Joshua 7 is a picture of that for you and me. We're going to look at two questions. The first question is this. What happens when you sin and attempt to hide it? What happens when you sin and attempt to hide it? For six chapters, as we've read in Joshua, they've, they've known nothing but victory and success and advance in the promised land. And then you come to the very first word of the first verse of chapter 7, and you know there's a problem. It starts with the word, but... They've had this great victory in Jericho, and then verse 1 says, But the children of Israel committed a trespass against the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Why was he angry? Earlier, before they ever entered the promised land in Deuteronomy and and other places, God had said to the people of Israel, things like he talks about in in Deuteronomy 9, he, he told them, he said, look, when I drive these people out from before you, don't think it's because of your goodness. Don't think it's because of your righteousness. It's because of their wickedness. You see, for as far back as Abraham, God had planned to destroy this Canaanite people, the Amorites. In fact, if you go back and you can just note it in your margin, Genesis 15, God had told Abraham that a great people would arise and they would go to Egypt, but they would come back to Canaan. And the reason they weren't coming back right away, the reason it would take 400 years is because the sins of the Amorites was not yet complete. There's a legal limit of sin. And they had not reached it yet. God was being patient with them. God was giving them every opportunity to stop what they were doing. How bad was it? In, um, you can just jot this in the margin, but in, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31, listen to how bad it was. You shall not worship the Lord your God that way, the way of the people of Canaan. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done. Now imagine that. Deuteronomy 12, 31. Every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods, for they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. And so the people of Israel coming in to the promised land were not just coming in because they were wonderful people and these were particularly bad people. These were a people 
that had so offended God that he had finally passed sentence on them as a people, and they were going to be destroyed. That's why God said, when you come in, you don't take their stuff, particularly at Jericho in this first battle. You don't take their stuff. I'm driving them out before you. I'm bringing the walls down. This is my victory. This is my stuff. And that's why they called it stuff that was devoted to the Lord. And everything was being judged in Jericho. Everything was going to be destroyed. And he said, I don't want you to settle down with them. I don't want you to move next door to them. I don't want you to say, hey, his daughter's cute. Let's marry off these these people together and form alliances and, and covenants with them. Don't do any of that stuff. What I want you to do is to tear down every high place, every temple, every altar, every vestige of their idolatry that has so offended me. And so God said, to Joshua and the people of Israel, these things. And just before they went into Jericho, if you want to turn back a chapter, to Joshua chapter 6, verse 18, just before they attacked Jericho, Joshua reminded them of these truths. Joshua 6, 18, and you by all means abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed. It's like an infection. You just touch it. He said, don't, don't touch it. Keep yourself from this. Abstain from these accursed things lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. You know, if, if I were to tell you just, you know, it's 11.01 on Sunday morning, February the 7th. Is that right? And I said, look, I just got some information that there are a dozen smart bombs coming this way and that every object in this room has been painted with some kind of special marker and the smart bomb is going to destroy every object in this room, every pew, every pulpit, every chair, all the instruments, every hymnal. You need to go and abstain from touching or taking anything, please. What would you do? Grab a couple hymnals and leave? No, of course not. You're smarter than that. You'd say, you got it, Pastor. I'm not touching any of that stuff. I'm out of here. But see, Achan didn't understand that principle. He didn't understand that everything in Jericho was under a sentence to be destroyed because this people had so offended God. And so what does he do? He grabs the stuff. And you know what he's saying? He's saying, I, I'm going to take this stuff here that's in the kill zone, and I am now part of the kill zone. Lord, in effect, he's saying, I want you to do to me what you're doing to your enemies. That's what he did. And that's how God responded to it. And so the first thing that happens is that when you and I sin and try to hide it, is that we provoke the Lord. We provoke him. He's not a God, an idea in an old book who dwells outside the universe and checks in on us once every few thousand years. He is a living God, and he loves you and he knows you. And you and I can grieve his spirit, the Bible says. We can quench his spirit, the Bible says. And we can grieve the heart of God. And so we need to take sin seriously if we don't want to anger him. Question is, what happens when you sin and attempt to hide it? There's a second thing that happens. You expose those around you to increase levels of enemy attack and possibly defeat. You expose everyone around you. Uh, if you look at verse 4 again, we, Joshua 7, verse 4, uh, it says, So about 3,000 men went up from there 
from the people. But they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men. And at the end of the verse, it says, Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. 36 men, 36 fathers, potentially. 36 husbands, 36 sons. Dead. Why? Because of Achan. Because of what he had done. The impact of my sin is never confined to me. We want to think it's private, that it never affects anybody else, but we don't understand how seriously the Bible takes community and relationships. That as a father, that you have spiritual responsibility for your sons and daughters. That as a husband, you have a spiritual responsibility to lead, take the initiative spiritually with your wife. That as a pastor, I have spiritual responsibility to take initiative in encouraging development, growth, discipleship in a church. As a Sunday school teacher, you have a spiritual responsibility. There are connections in these relationships. And, and just as there's an issue of, with authority, uh, if, if the pastor goes bad, if the father goes bad, if, if the national leadership goes bad, if, if the Sunday school teacher goes bad, there are effects and consequences that affect the people that they relate to. It's also true, not just with authority, but also with those that you are associated with in some kind of official way. Being a church member, a member of certain organizations, or, um, you know, the Bible talks about uh, very specifically to the single women of Corinth, if you're a believing woman, not to marry an unbelieving man. Because there are consequences to that association, that connection. Now, if you're already married to an unbelieving man or woman, the Bible says keep it that way. Because of that association, you may have a spiritual effect on them. You may sanctify them. You, may, you, you have made them a special target for the grace and the love of God. Don't, don't leave them. But, but the Bible puts a great emphasis on that. And so here's, here's something of how this works, okay? I brought an umbrella. I've talked about this before, but I'm going to do it again. I've got an umbrella here, okay? And the Bible says that if you're a Christian, Colossians 3, uh, chapter 1, verse 13, says that when you became a Christian, you were taken from the domain or the rule of darkness, which affects much of the world, and you were placed into the kingdom of the Son of God. And so you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. You're physically on earth, but your relationship has changed to the kingdom of God. You are under the kingdom of God. You're under his rule. You're under his authority. Now, if what Achan did was God said, people of God, if you stay under me and you do what, what I'm directing you to do, which is destroy all this stuff out here, uh, destruction's going to happen to Jericho. So don't touch their stuff. But what Achan did was he moved out from underneath God's rule when he rebelled, and he took the stuff. You know what he did at that moment? Everything in that city had this on it, and he put one on himself. You understand? Moved out from under the rule, the authority of God, put himself in the path of destruction, put himself in the kill zone, and you need to understand that if you are a person in authority, or if you're a person who has a strong association with someone else, that when you sin at that level, you are affecting them. You may be exposing family members to battles they would never have had to fight if you had been obedient. You understand that? There are consequences to our sin that affects 
the people around us. They are responsible for their own actions. You are not responsible for their sin. I'm saying that you are exposing them to an additional level of temptation, destruction, struggle, challenges that they might otherwise never have faced. You say, well, that's not fair. Well, that's the way it works, doesn't it? You know, when a mother uses drugs, it affects the baby. It's not that baby's fault, is it? When a father has some secret stash of magazines he shouldn't be looking at and his little boy catches it, that boy's affected by it, isn't he? Isn't he? It's not, it's not the dad's fault that the boy's sinning, but he certainly contributed to it, didn't he? And so we have to be very aware and take very seriously that my sin is not a private thing. There's a third consequence when I sin and I don't do anything about it and I hide it. You discourage others from trusting God. You discourage others from trusting God. Man, Joshua is devastated. When you look at this text and read what he says in verse 7. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. And so this man who loved the Lord, who was walking by faith, who spent time in God's Word every day, was devastated, and he begins to question God. Why? And how many people had been shaken in their faith, damaged in their faith, discouraged in their walk, because somebody they looked to, somebody they trusted, a man or woman they admired in Christ blew it and did nothing about it. And he was struggling. Never occurred to him that God is always good and that God is always faithful. He begins to blame God for what's happening. Why God? Well, it wasn't God, it was Achan. Here's the deal. What happens when I sin and I don't deal with it? You and I, you and I sin, we do something. And uh, it stands out. So what do we do when we've messed up? Uh, natural tendencies to do what Achan did, okay? The natural tendency is to hide it. So we don't think anybody else can see it, so everything's okay. You know, we cover it up best we can, and uh, we think, well, there's no consequence to anybody else, and I don't know that it's much consequence to me, so I really don't deal with it, don't worry about it, and we think it's no big deal because it's hidden. The truth is, the way God sees it is not like this. The way God sees it is like this. He sees it. I don't care where you put it. I don't care where you hide it. I don't care how you try to cover it up. God sees it. He knows. And he's fully aware. And then those consequences can begin to unfold in your life and my life. and, um, and, And the people being affected may never know firsthand why this was happening. But you'll know. You'll know. Boy, we need to take sin seriously, don't we? There are consequences to it. It affects not only me, but it affects those around me. So if I want to walk by faith, if I'm serious in pursuing a relationship with God by faith, if, if that's, that's my desire, and I mess up, and I blow it, welcome to what it means to fail. And that's what happened to Joshua. And the nation experienced defeat and experienced failure. But God does not want to leave you there. It is not the intent of God 
that he's just waiting for you to mess up, and then he's going to squash you down and say, aha, gotcha. That's not his intent. So the second question I want us to look at is this. How can you remove the damaging effects of hidden sin in your life? How can you remove the damaging effects of hidden sin in your life? In other words, how do you get back on track when you've messed up? Number one, ask the Holy Spirit to convict you of the seriousness of your sin. You know, there's no greater deterrent to doing it a second time than knowing how bad it hurt the first time. And the Holy Spirit can help you develop that awareness of how serious your sin is. And so ask him to help you in that. God answers Joshua in verse 10. Joshua is saying, God, why are you doing this? In verse 10, look at what God says. So the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned. Verse 12, he describes what Achan, that, that someone took of the accursed things. He didn't name Achan. He just said someone has taken it. Verse 12, therefore the children of Israel, because of this, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turn their backs before the enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. God is saying, I'm going to withdraw my presence from you. You're going to be just like the people of Canaan unless you deal with this. And uh, if I was going to translate that for the Christian, your life is going to be, your experience of your life is going to be no different than a person without Christ. Totally like you never knew him at all as those consequences and those start rolling in. So what does Joshua do? He launches a process to discover the source of the problem. What they did, as you read the text, is that they drew lots, and they found the right tribe, and they found the right, right families, and they drilled right down to Achan. And, and they didn't have the Holy Spirit functioning as we do today. The fullness of the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost to the church, and so we have some great advantage at that point. But they didn't have that, and so God superintended this process of drawing lots, and Achan is identified and, and the seriousness of what Achan has done has been communicated to him. He has been caught. He has been exposed. And through that process, just like the Holy Spirit will do with you and me, he will identify the area of my life that is causing a problem. And i got to tell you, I'd much rather the Holy Spirit do that than me try to dig it all up and just get, get into a mess. I'm so thankful that God doesn't take the book of everything that I've done wrong in my life and drop it in my lap and say, now go, go do better. He doesn't do that. His Holy Spirit is working in every believer and he's going to identify the Achan that you need to address next. You and I are in a process of growing to become like Jesus. His purpose in everything that's happening to you is to conform you into the likeness of Jesus. And so his spirit brings things up. He says, now Don, I want you to deal with this now in your life. It's time to take this seriously, and he's going to grow us. And then as we have sin, maybe even in our past, that I've never dealt with, maybe never, never told anybody, never addressed it. Maybe I stole something. Maybe I did something, and I've never made it right. I promise you, if you're serious about going forward into the promised land, the Holy Spirit is going to surface that thing and say, now, now son, my daughter, I want you to deal with this. How can you remove the damaging effects of hidden sin? The first step is conviction that only the Holy Spirit can bring. Here's the second one. Confess what you did 
to the affected ones and make it right as far as possible. Confess what you did to the affected ones and then make it right. And, and Achan was exposed and he was discovered and Joshua told him to make a full confession. And in verse 20 it says, And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I have done. And what he goes on to describe is what happens whenever you and I sin. He says, I saw it, I wanted it, I took it, and I hid it. I saw it, I wanted it, I took it, and I hid it. I mean, that goes all the way back to Genesis. Eve says, I saw it, I wanted it, I took it, and then I hid me. <laughs> you know, she and Adam both hid. So, so the process of sin, he fully confesses it. He recognizes the seriousness of what he's done. And he confesses it to the people that he has hurt. You know, sometimes people will, will confess to everybody for the next 20 years everything they've ever done. This is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about very specifically the people who are most affected or damaged or harmed or hurt by what you did. You, you go to the affected individuals and you make confession. I recognize what I did that, that damaged or hurt you. And when you and I do that, we're, we're beginning to deal with sin. We're not leaving it hidden. We're not leaving it buried, but we're, we're bringing it up. He had hidden this stuff literally in his tent in the ground. And he couldn't have hidden the volume of material that he had stolen. He couldn't even have transported it from Jericho to his tent unless somebody had helped him, and then more than likely it was his family. And he had all that stuff piled there. And when he confessed it, he said, it's over there in my tent. You can go get it now. I'm, I'm giving it back, I'm giving it up. And they went and they dug it up and they brought it back and there was all the stuff that caused the death of 36 guys and the defeat of Israel. And so as, as much as possible, the situation is being put right. What should have been done is now about to be done. And so the whole process of restitution is more than just giving back what I stole or saying I'm sorry for what I did. The process of restitution is under the Lord's leading and guidance, trying to put it back the way that it was originally. That's why we do restitution. That's why we try to pay back. That's why we try to make up. That's why we try to do those things. And the scripture teaches restitution. So some of you, maybe, you, you realize, you know, I've never put that back. I've never given that back. I've never dealt with that issue. I've never addressed that with that person. I never went to them whatever the case may be. I need conviction. I need to do confession and restitution. There's a third thing here, if I want to deal with the damaging effects of hidden sin. Number three, submit to the Lord's process of discipline and restoration. Submit to the Lord's process. He has a way of dealing with that sin in your life so that you are less likely to do it again and will grow you in the process. But, but we're not going to see that in what I'm about to read because Achan... Achan, I told you, he painted himself, he painted everything he had, he painted his family, he painted his animals, he painted his tent, and said, destroy me like you destroyed Jericho. Listen to what happens, verse 25. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, which is his great-grandfather, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them to the valley of Achor, and Achor in Hebrew means trouble. You think? The valley of trouble. 
And so at this moment, well, let me just finish it. Verse 25, and Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. That just seems kind of like redundant, but that's what they did. Now, what happened to him was that the judgment and the destruction that was coming on Jericho came on his family, came on him. Now, I wish I could tell you that that was extraordinary, that, that God never allows the consequences of one member of the family and what they do to affect others, but it does. I can't tell you how many churches I've been in over the last 20 years, last 10 years in Arkansas in a con- consulting role, and invariably, as that church is struggling to stay alive, you have a large auditorium and you have 20 people meeting in it, or they're meeting in a basement. You know, instead of in that auditorium, that church is struggling. Something is blocked. God wants his church to grow. He says that he will build his church, and he intends to reach people and to use the gospel to change lives, and he wants the church to grow. 6,000 people in wind, not in church here this morning, not anywhere. He wants us to go and to love them and to share the gospel with them. And so when a church isn't growing, isn't doing that, something is blocking the grace of God. Something is blocking the mighty stream of what God wants to accomplish. And in so many churches, smaller churches, larger churches, there's always a knucklehead or a group of knuckleheads that are holding it up holding up what God wants to do. Don't be a knucklehead. You can tweet that. Achan died as a consequence of his sin. This was not the final judgment. There is a final judgment for all of our sins. All of us will stand before that final judgment, that throne. At that moment, I want to know about the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus tells me a couple of things right away. The cross tells me first how serious sin is because God saw it as so deadly and so serious and so worthy of destruction as something that needed to be dealt with, that needed to be addressed. God is absolutely holy and just lets no sin go untouched. And Christ died for us. Christ died for our sins. He took our place. And the cross shows me the seriousness of my sin. There's no such thing as a little sin if Jesus died for it. It also shows me how much he loves me and how much he loves the world that he would send his son to die for our sins. It shows that sin is really serious, but he loves us so much that he doesn't want the the effect, the impact, the eternal consequence of sin to fall on you. And so he was willing to send his son and let it fall on him. And that's why when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we can say that we are saved, rescued. I have a Savior, and His name is Jesus. And sin is serious, and I needed to be saved from it. What if sin has to be dealt with in my life? If I'm a Christian and I'm not dealing with it, or I keep doing it over and over again and I'm not taking it seriously, what's God going to do about that? 
Does he ever correct us? Does he ever tell a Christian or stop a Christian and say, hey, you know, you can't keep doing that anymore? Yes, he does. In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews 12, you can go read it sometime today, that just like a father disciplines his children, God disciplines us. And that if I am blowing him off and I'm blowing off my sin and I'm not taking it seriously, that God will, he is willing to sacrifice my happiness, he's willing to sacrifice my health, he's willing to do whatever it takes to bring me back to him. You say, are you really serious, preacher? I am serious. Look at Achan. Look at Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. All they did was lie. You think lying's a big deal? You go to Corinthians and they were just some people abusing the Lord's Supper and abusing the fellowship. They were people who were, who were cutting in line on other people in the church. They weren't loving them. They weren't being sensitive to them. They weren't being careful for them. You think that's a big deal? He said, because of this, some of y'all are weak and some of you sleep. What's he saying? Some of you are sick and some of y'all are dead, dying. You think God doesn't discipline his children and chastise us and correct us? Let me give you an example of it. I want to close with this example. Uh, there's only one other place where the Valley of Achor is mentioned in the Old Testament in a way that's instructive, and it occurs in Hosea. And if you want to find Hosea 2, you can, or just jot it in the margin, Hosea 2. Hosea is a story of a prophet named Hosea who was directed by God to marry a prostitute. And for a while, she was happily married, and then she went back to her old life. And she was a picture of Israel, married to God who went back to idols. So her life is an uh, imagery of what's happening spiritually to Israel. And so what's God going to do about it? That's the story of Hosea. What he does to Gomer is what he says, I'm going to do with the nation of Israel. And uh, so what is he willing to do to bring Gomer back to Hosea? What is he willing to do? Well, the first thing he's willing to do is, is pile up frustrated desires. Frustrated desires. If you look at Hosea 2, verse 6, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her paths. She will chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better for me than now. What's he saying? He's saying she's going to go try to get back into her old life, but she's not going to be happy doing that. She's never going to be satisfied with that. She's never going to have a day in her life where she sits back and says, I'm so glad I left my husband and I'm back doing what I was doing. She's never going to have that. And so what's he do? He hedges her in so that she can't get no satisfaction. And God's willing to do that with you and me. He's willing to sacrifice our happiness, sacrifice our contentment to get our attention. There's something else he does here with Hosea. There's financial losses he uses. Financial losses. In verse 9, he says, Therefore I will return and take away my grain in its time, and my new wine in its season, and will take back my wool and my linen given to cover her nakedness. What does that mean? It means she's going to need some stuff. God's going to allow circumstances to occur in such a way that her financial success, the stuff that she needs, she's not going to have, and he's going to let financial pressure accumulate in her life. Now, those are two examples of what God does to correct you and me. Just two. There's more, but there's two. Now, let me say something in red letters. Every time you have a financial loss or every time you're not happy, it's not necessarily because you're, you have sinned and there's some dark sin that God's dealing with, okay? 
I don't want you to think that every time something goes wrong in your life, that it's because God is punishing you for sin. That's not what I'm teaching. But there are occasions where you and I are in rebellion or we have sinned and we have refused to deal with it. And our Father loves us so much because we are his sons and daughters that he will do whatever it takes to bring us back to himself. Whatever it takes. Wouldn't you do that for your child? Wouldn't you do whatever it takes to get them back? And that's what he does. But there's a third thing. Here's the ending that you need to see to this story with Hosea. It ends with fresh encounter. It ends with fresh encounter. In verse 14 of Hosea 2, this is God still speaking. Listen to this carefully, okay? This is where it all comes together. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I'm going to draw her to me. I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her, and I will give her her vineyards from there. And the valley of Achor, have you heard of that before? The valley of trouble, that's what she's been in. No satisfaction, financial pressure, uh, God hemming her in so that she begins to turn her heart back to him. The valley of trouble. What is the purpose of that valley of trouble? Well, here it is. He says, I'm going to give the valley of Achor as a door of hope. A door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. Yeah, Israel's messed up. Yeah, they were defeated. But God took them through a process, the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, so that they could get it dealt with, get it addressed, get it out of their life. And in the very next chapter, what happens to Ai? Ai goes down. And they keep on going. And that's what he wants to do in your life. Yeah, okay, you messed up. Yeah, maybe you messed up a long time ago. Yes, maybe you hid something a long time ago. But there is a way forward. You don't have to stay there. God wants to deliver you from that and restore you. Take your valley of trouble, bring it to a place to where now it's a door of blessing. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Here's what it looks like. Um, our lives a lot of times are like this bowl of sand okay and uh, it may have been five minutes ago or it may have been five years ago or 50 years ago but there's sometimes things that we do that we don't tell anybody about and we don't deal with if I refuse to handle the hidden rebellion in my life if I refuse to deal with it and I am a son of God or a daughter of God. Uh, he's going to lead me through a process that may not feel good. But here's what has to happen. Someone has to go down and get that, that sin that's hidden. And it has to be exposed. And when God was bringing that pressure on Gomer, he was trying to bring her to a place of where she would recognize what she was doing and which is conviction from the Holy Spirit, and confess it. And the whole purpose of that was so that the Valley of Achor, this is no fun when God exposes sin in our life and, and puts pressure on us. What he wants to do is bring us to a place where we will dig it up, where we will expose it, confess it, and then get rid of it. And I don't need that because we're not doing any other services today. Okay? 
And that's what God wants to do with you and me. There's no need for you to go around and be miserable and guilty and ashamed for the rest of your life for something you've done. Jesus bore our shame on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. And yeah, it's no fun. Yeah, it's tough to confess. Yeah, it's tough to make restitution. Yeah, it's tough to make it right. But I'll tell you what, some of the greatest movements of God in the history of the Christian church have happened when one or more individuals said, you know, I'm going to get right with God and I don't care what it costs me as far as my reputation. I'm just going to do it. God, I was wrong. People, I was wrong. And they just, they just dive right in. Say, forgive me. And I want to put it right. However I wronged you, I want to put it right. And um, man, that changes everything, doesn't it? And that's what God wants to do with you and with me. Here's the bottom line as we talk about handling hidden sin. The bottom line is this. He corrects us in order to renew our walk with him. He corrects us in order to renew our walk with him. He's not trying to do a beat down on you. He's trying to set you free. He's trying to bring you to a place where you can have victory again and new life. It begins with trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. We've talked about the cross and how important it is and what it represents. If you've never trusted, put your trust in Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior. I want to invite you to do that in just a moment. We're going to have, sing a song, and it's a time of responding to the message and to the Holy Spirit. There'll be pastors standing down here at the front. And if you want to put your trust in Jesus Christ, I encourage you to do it publicly and without shame. To say, I'm trusting Christ. I'm asking him to change me, forgive me, and make me a new man and make me a new woman. And so in just a moment, we're going to stand and sing, and I'm going to invite you to do that. And then, brothers and sisters, as you struggle with sin, there's not a person here who is not infected with sin. But if Christ lives in you, there's a victory to be had. Are you experiencing the life that he wants you to have? As you look at your heart and your mind and what's going on around you, are you experiencing consequences of sin? You're saying, Pastor, I did this. I I can't undo it, and these consequences are pressing on me. Hear me. God will use everything that happens in your life for good. You don't have to dwell on that forever. But if he's correcting you, if it's not finished, if you've not dealt with it, and he's bringing those pressures and he's hedging you in and you're experiencing those things and you know why deal with it deal with it cooperate with him submit to the process of correction that God is doing in your life be free pray with me father thank you for your word and thank you for how your holy spirit he comes and sometimes gently sometimes very powerfully makes a point in my soul and for that person that that is experiencing that right now I pray Lord that they would humble themselves and yield themselves to your direction and to your guidance and we ask it in Jesus name Amen